Open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 17. Well, today is our second sermon in our series, of our Simply Live series. And last week, uh, we heard some, we probably discovered something that might have been a little bit troubling. And that is some of us, or maybe even many of us, including myself, uh, we found that we are suffering from a dreadful condition. And that is that we are lacking the heart of God. We're lacking the heart of God. Uh, Much like Jonah, even though we have tasted of God's goodness, of his grace and his mercy, and God saving us from our sins and delivering us from death, uh, what we find is that we still, for whatever reason, uh, because of our hearts, that we find more joy and uh, we find more joy and have more compassion for material things like cheeseburgers uh, than we do uh, for things that bring us temporal comfort than we do for those that are perishing and dying In their sins. And that's a problem. And that's a bad condition. The fact that me, somebody like me or somebody like you who has tasted of the goodness of God, been saved, can't or does not have more joy or compassion for those who are lost, but rather more joy and compassion for some of the material things that we have in this world. uh, There's something wrong with that. And so what we desperately need this particular month is God to transform us, to give us a heart like God's. So that we can begin to love what God loves, that we hate what God hates, that we pursue what God pursues. And ultimately, that God, that that our will will be God's will. That we will do exactly what God seeks to do. And what did we say that God's will was? God's ultimate will. What is he doing in all of creation? We said it last week. We said in Revelation chapter 5, God gives us a glimpse. He says that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will one day come to faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people ask, what is God's will? I'm discovering God's will. There it is for you to see people from all over the world come to faith in him. And so this week we are turning from a dreadful condition and lacking the heart of God to a mother's choice, the the blessed word of God, the blessed word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to talk about specifically in, in this particular passage of chapter 17, just why the word of God is so, such a blessing. Why is the word of God that he has entrusted us is why does it bless us so? And then what I want to do is after discussing that, why it's such a blessing, I want then to bring some application for you and I that will encourage you and I this month to continue to live simply so that others might simply live. All right. And so the first thing we want to see in the word of God this morning is this, is that the word is the the, the word of God is a blessing because, first of all, it is life giving. It is life-giving. It is the life-giving word of God. Now, what we find this morning is the beginning of chapter 17 is that God speaks through Elijah to cast a curse, to speak a curse on the nation of Israel. And we see that beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And Elijah the Tishbai of Tishbe in Gilead said to, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, when the prophet says my word, whose word is he really referring to? To God's. We learned in our series in the very beginning of this year, the theology of the hearer, that a prophet, when he speaks on behalf of God, it is God authoritatively speaking. And so what God is saying is, hey, listen, it will rain when I say it will rain and it will not rain until I say that it will rain. So this is a judgment. This is basically a physical discipline that God brings upon the nation of Israel. 
And so the question is why? What did they do to deserve this? Well, they deserve this because they have blatantly rejected the word of God, not once, but time and time and time again. This was demonstrated in the leader, the king, Ahab, uh, in that particular time. God had told his people, do not intermarry. Now, that had nothing to do with color, had everything to do with religion. He said, do not go and marry these, these, these other women from other places because you will marry into their worship. And that's exactly what he did. Ahab went out and got this beautiful, wonderful, sweet little girl by the name of Jezebel. And she was uh, from Phoenicia and she worshipped uh, the Phoenician god Baal, who was a fertility god who controlled, they believe, controlled the rains in the harvest. In Jezebel, sweet little thing she was, she wanted nothing more than to convert the entire nation of Israel to Baalism, to worship Baal. And she was willing to cut anybody's throat, chop anybody down that got in her way to be able to do it. She was a vicious, vicious woman. But Ahab, her husband, was no better. In fact, what we find is that Ahab didn't just go along with it. He actually encouraged it by building an altar to Baal as well as a worship facility that he could be worshipped as well. And I just want to let you know, I didn't add this in here, but if you were to go back and do some study on the worship of Baal, it is not only gruesome, but it is... it, 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 it to partakes in things that really should not even be expressed. And I have a hard time even telling you what the practices were here in mixed company. It was that anti-God. And this is what was incorporated even after God said no. God had sent his prophet to them time and time again, telling them to repent, to turn from their sin, but they refused to do it. And because of that, what God ultimately does is he brings judgment because of the great witnesses, or because of the great sinfulness and wickedness. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, the Bible says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before them. Now, if you know anything about the history of the kings of Israel, you know that this is saying something because there were plenty of really wicked kings. And yet God says here of him that there was no greater wicked king than Ahab. Nobody provoked the anger of God more than Ahab and his sweet peachy wife, Jezebel. And so what we find in this particular text is, is that God is bringing his judgment. He is judging them for them dis, uh, ignoring his word, for rejecting his word. And so he brings a physical, a, a physical drought, a physical judgment with a drought. But when there's a drought, what comes next? A famine. And then when there's a famine, what comes after that? There's physical suffering and death. So this is what they were ultimately facing. In essence, God sends this because he wants them to know there is no other God but me. There is one God, the God of Israel, and I have the power over the rains and the dew, and I have the control over everything. And if you want to be taken care of, it will come from only one God, and that's this God. Baal does not exist. And so what we find is that he begins to judge them uh, through physically, but also spiritually. Look at verse 2, if you will. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now, the question immediately is, why is it that God is telling him to run? Why is he telling him to, sk- to skedaddle? Well, the simplest answer for that is, is that God is placing him in, in the PPP, uh, into the PPP. You know what that is. That's the, the prophet protection program uh, of God's. And he wants him to be around so he can still speak. 
And he knows that if he resides in Israel and in Ahab or Jezebel get their little paws on them, what are they going to do? His spokesperson is going to be killed. But I think there's something else that's going on here. I believe he calls him away not only to preserve his messenger, but I believe it's also to bring even more judgment upon the people. Because at first he brings a physical judgment, now he's bringing a spiritual judgment. Listen, when his prophet, when his mouthpiece leaves, the word of God is leaving with him. And so just as rain leaves and brings physical death, now the word of God, which brings spiritual life, is now going to be taken away. And now they are going to encounter spiritual death as a judgment of God on the nation. Now, we see this and you say, how do we understand this? Well, the word of God often really relates the word of God and really describes it as being like rain. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 2, the Bible says, May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 10 through 11. The Lord says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So as water brings forth life, which ultimately brings life to mankind. So the word of God itself comes from God, comes from the heavens himself, brings life to us so that we can have spiritual life. And God comes and he says, I'm judging you. And what I'm going to do is I'm not only going to take physical life, but I'm going to take spiritual life as a judgment to them. Now, this is a very scary issue, and it's extremely sad for this reason, not only that people are dying, but there was no reason for them to die. Because the point is, is that Israel, there was no reason for them to die of, of a lack of the word of God because the word of God was everywhere. There was no country like Israel that had more access to the life-giving word of God than Israel did. God entrusted them and those people to take his word throughout all the world. He had set them aside. He had entrusted them with his prophets and with his written word. And so they had more access than anybody else. But yet, even though God had spoken to them time and time and time again with his prophets and through his written word, guess what? They continued to reject it and reject it and reject it. And they finally himself dying spiritually. It would be like a man who is in a, in a pool of fresh water and literally he sits there and he dies of thirst because he's unwilling to dip his mouth and just take of everything that is ultimately around him. It's a sad, sad scenario. But folks, can I suggest this morning is when I was studying this, I can't help but to think that in, in not that this is God's primary application of this, but I can't help but to think of the own, my own country that I live in. I can't help but to think of the United States of America. Now, I love our country, but I will tell you this. The thing that I'm so grateful for for, is that we have more access to the life-giving word of God than any other country in the world. God has given us the word of God. Listen to this. We have more Christian broadcast television shows. We have more Christian radio, more Christian radio stations, more Christian television stations. We have more DVDs. We have more CDs. We have more Christian clubs. We have more Christian book clubs. We have more Christian bookstores. We have stuff online beyond imagination. We have more Christian publishing uh, um, companies. We have more Bibles in the United States. We have more seminaries, more Bible colleges. We have way more churches and we spend far more money within the United States to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ just within the United States than the whole world spends on the rest of the evangelism for all the other people who live in the world. 
And yet, people continue to reject. They continue to remain in their sins. And as we continue to propagate the gospel, share the gospel with them time and time again, they say no, 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 and they're dying in their sins. Now, that is unbelievably sad to me. And it is absolutely tragic to die when what would give you life is right there encircling you. How sad is that? But what is even more sad to me personally is this. Is for those who are around the world that are in the same exact spiritual place of death. And they have little to no access to the life-giving word at all. Please let us understand Congregation Celebration Baptist Church. You cannot come to faith in God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way that you can come to faith in Jesus Christ is through the teaching of the gospel and the word of God. There is no other way to come. Those 1.9 billion people in the world without a witness and without the word of God and access to the word of God, they they deserve death because of their sin, as all of us do, but they do not have access to the Word of God. And listen to me, unless they are given access to the Word of God somehow, some way, they will be lost for all eternity. They will be lost. And so what am I suggesting this morning? What am I, what am I stating? Well, I'm just I, listen to what Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. It, it shows us this very truth. It says, for the scriptures say, every, listen to these beautiful words. Just listen to them. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that awesome? What he's saying is he's, he's really showing the parameters. He says, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek or whether you live in the United States or whether you live in Papua New Guinea, all the rules are the same. The rules are the same is this. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. You will have eternal life and you will know what it is like to truly live, to be forgiven of your sins. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. But then he follows it up with this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel to those places that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. Why are they beautiful? Because they are bearing and bringing life to a place that is completely and utterly dead. Are you gripped by this at all? And yet, we as Americans in the American church pour far more right here to one country to reach people for Jesus far more than all the rest of the world combined right here. And yet, and for me personally, what I find is many people just reject and reject and reject and reject. It's what happens here every single Sunday. People come in and the word of God is preached and people reject, 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 reject. And yet there are some people who have never even heard or had access of the life-giving word and gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? You say, well, Brother Mike, are you suggesting that we don't try to reach people here in Yulee? Are you suggesting that we don't try to reach people here in America? Absolutely not. 
I'm not suggesting, uh, I'm not suggesting this morning any kind of, uh, that the answer is subtraction. I'm suggesting that it's addition. Is it frustrating to keep beating people over the head with the same gospel all the time and then still continue to say, I'm not ready or just completely reject it? Absolutely, but it's what God calls us to. We are here, we are to be a light. We're to be a light to, to, to Yuli. We are to be a light to Nassau County and to America where God has placed us. But this is what I would suggest. To take the same exact suffering, the same, the same exact compassion that we have and move it outward. Is it right for us to feel so much compassion for families and friends who are neck deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ and not find pity and compassion for those that have no access to the word of God? Our church, please understand, Celebration Baptist Church, apart from the gospel message, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. So the judgment here is, is, is absolutely in peril. For there to be no gospel means that there is spiritual death. And so, first of all, we understand that the word is a blessing. Why? Because it brings life. It brings life. The second reason that it's a blessing is because it is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. Notice, if you will, in the word of God in verse 4. He says, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Then he tells us how it all goes down, verse 5. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he lived uh, by the brook at Cherith to the east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought, excuse me, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Now, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Isn't this a really clear picture of God's divine work and intervention for God's man? For God's person. I mean, he is literally being fed by ravens. Yes? I mean, each day goes by, he's got plenty of water and he's got plenty of food. He gets two meals a day, not three. He gets two meals a day in the morning. Here come the birds giving him bread and giving him meat. That's amazing. Now, what kind of meat was it? Don't ask. Okay? All right? Just cook thoroughly and swallow quickly. All right? Because these are not birds of prey. These are scavengers. We're talking roadkill here, all right? And so they bring these things, but God is consistent to take care of him. Now, let me tell you, me growing up, and I hate to be the one that kind of does this, and I'm not saying that I'm always right, but lots of times when I've heard this preached, what I often hear people say is, see, that's a promise to you. That's a promise to you. And what we do is we use this particular passage as a comfort to those who are in a position where they've, they're in financial constraints. They, they, have, they have lost a job. And so what we sit there and say, hey, let me tell you something. If God can use ravens to give you bread and roadkill, then you know what? You got a big flamingo. You live in Florida. God can bring you a big T-bone steak. Isn't that wonderful? And ultimately brings that. Now, I'm not so sure. Now, listen, let me say this. I do believe that the word of God is plentiful in passages that say that it'll take care of his own. I believe that. But here's, I'm not so sure that this is what this particular text is saying. You say, why is that? Well, because when we move over to another chapter in chapter 19 and verse 18, God says that, that ultimately that Elijah was not the only faithful person in Israel. He was not the only one that denied and refused to bow at the boot of, of Baal. Instead, we find that there were 7,000 others. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So here's my question. 
Why is it that we think that it's okay for us to identify with God's prophet, but not with the 7,000 that are back in Israel who are not being provided for by ravens? Instead, they are suffering along with whom? All those that have bowed their knee to them. Just a question. Now, again, what I'm suggesting is I think that there's another point here. That's what I'm trying to get at. And what I think it ultimately is suggesting uh, to us is this is that God supernaturally provided for his prophet, not in order to secure your and my comfort in the midst of difficult times, but rather to secure his will for all times. See, what he was doing is, here was a messenger who had the life-giving word of God. It had to be propagated amongst all of the nations. So what does God do? He sees it in jeopardy, and he makes sure that no famine, no difficulty, no struggle, no problem is going to affect his plan from being done. What does he do? He sends ravens to give this guy money. Why? So the gospel will be sent to a little woman in another country who is waiting for a divine appointment for here to hear, hear, the, hear the good news and for God's will to be fulfilled. That's why he provides in that particular way for her. And it's an amazing truth. So some people sit back and say, well, how do we know? How do you really know that that's the truth? Do you have any kind of scriptural evidence of that? And I think that we do. I think in Luke chapter 4 and verse 25 through 26, we see that this is a correct interpretation of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of this text in the words of Jesus Christ himself. There, while he's in Nazareth and he's preaching, he says this. He's in a synagogue and he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in the Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them. He's speaking to those of Israel. He says, but only to Zarephath, the land of Sodom, to a woman who was a widow. Now, here's the incredible thing that goes on here. Here's what's crazy about this. These people get so mad at him. Do you know what they do? They take him to a cliff and they're about to push him off and kill him. Whatever Jesus said made them so mad they wanted to kill him. So my question is, what was Jesus actually getting at? And why did this make the people so mad? What Jesus was saying was simply this. He was saying the reason that, God, that, that Elijah was sent to this woman and not all the other women in the, in, in, that were in need in Israel is because it is my plan not only to save people in Israel, but to save people around the world. That's his plan. So the Jewish people are angry in the New Testament of the book of Luke because they don't like this idea at all. The idea of God saving somebody other than themselves, remember this sounds a lot like Jonah, this extreme nationalism, that God would waste his time and save some pagan out there and that all of their, all of their focus and God's focus wouldn't be on them, those four and no more, was completely repugnant to them. That idea they completely and utterly rejected, they thought was ridiculous. What were they suffering for? They were suffering from a very narrow view of the will of God and a very, very small view of their God. They believed God was nothing more than a, than, a, than a local entity that looked after the people of Israel and wanted to save them. But the truth of the matter is, is what they had to be reminded of was this, is that God was not a citizen of Israel. God was not a citizen of Israel. And his desire was way beyond this small little landmass in the Middle East but rather that they would go and take the word and spread it to all peoples of all nations of all tongues so that they would come to faith in this amazing God. Now we sit back and you might suggest, 
Well, Brother Mike, what does this have to do with us? Well, I want to let you know there's nothing I think that hurts my heart. I don't get mad. It's not anger because I know it's a misunderstanding. There's nothing that hurts my heart more in the last six years here at Celebration Baptist Church than when we begin to implement mission strategies, and we still do, to hear the people of this church body turn and say, why in the world are we going there when there's people who are hurting here? Why in the world would we send our dollars over there when there's people that need to hear about Jesus right here? And it pains me to hear that kind of statement Because from a rational, humanistic perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. But from the will of God, it makes no sense at all. Because ultimately what we're doing is we're doing the same thing as we think that God is all about America. FYI, God and Jesus are not Americans. You do understand that, right? The reason why we go... It's because God's kingdom is far more than America. The reason that we go is because God is the God of all people. He's the God of all nations. He's the God of all languages. He is the God of all. And so that is why we sit and say, hey, God, our will is yours, not just to sit back and take care of those who are here. Listen, do you know where the cheapest place to do ministry is? Where, church? Where? Here. Yuli. Why? You live here. You and I live here. I know oftentimes when somebody uses the excuse, why should we stay here when there are people, or why should we go there when people are dying here? I know they don't really mean it. They do not even have the gumption to cross the street to tell their neighbor about Jesus Christ. As though they care about the lost pagan around the world. And so the word of God simply sits there and it teaches us very well. It's unstoppable. Here's the great news. No matter what comes, no matter what difficulty in America or around the world, no matter what kind of enemy, no matter what kind of drought, no matter what kind of famine, no matter what kind of anything, God's word is unstoppable because his will is unstoppable. One day, Revelation chapter 5 tells us that indeed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will indeed surround the throne and praise worship, praise and worship our God. That's it. And so why is this such a blessing to us, the word of God? Because first of all, it is, it, it, it is life-giving. Second of all, it's unstoppable. And third, it is faithful. It is faithful. Now notice in the word of God in verse 7, he says, And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So we get this. Now I want to let you know that this is not the normal aspect of what God does. Missionaries are not usually sponsored. They'll tell you, I know them. I have one, a father who's a missionary. He has not once had ravens deliver stuff to him. The way, the normal way in which God uses to propagate his gospel is that his people are is propagated and used the finances of people. That's how it's normally used. So God is taking something extraordinary and now it's moving back to how God normally works. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see that God is leading uh, uh, him to a different area. Notice if you will, in verse, um, excuse me, in verse eight, he says, then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, there's something I need to tell you about this place called Zarephath. This place, Zarephath, was known 
from that whole region as a place where they smelted, the smelting process went on. That is melting down of metals and then scooping away all of the impurities at that place to purify that particular metal. Well, the word Zeropoth actually means that. It speaks of that smelting process in a huge fiery furnace to purify. And, you know, I just think it's interesting that this is the place that God sends Elijah because it's the very thing that's going to be happening to his soul. God is going to put his faith through the smelting process into the furnace, and he is going to purify his faith. That's what happens. Listen, that's what happens when we step out of comfort zones and we go to where God is calling us to go for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does it to purify our faith. Now, he's going to show two ways in which he ultimately does it. First of all, he does it by where he is called to go. Again, he is called where? He's called to Zarephath. And, and, and why is that important? Well, primarily because it was a capital of Baal worship. But even more than that, it is where the, the, the king, the leader of that particular area, Ethbaal, lived. Now, Ethbaal was the father of Jezebel. Isn't that nice? So you're arch enemy just so happens God's sending to you to where your arch enemy's father dwells, right? And if he's like any father, if you mess with his daughter, what, you're a dead man. And so God says, of all the places in the world I want you to go, I want you to be safe where? By going to your enemy's camp. And by all indication, it's the most dangerous place he could possibly go. But did you notice his response? He didn't sit there and go, well, dude, that's just too dangerous. That's a, that's a closed country. I can't go there. They worship a different God. What I'd rather do, God, and for some of you that are being called to the ministry and called to preaching, what I'd rather do is just go down here the street and plant a church right in Yulee. That's much more comforting. Listen, it ain't that safe to be a preacher in Yulee. I'm telling you, all right? I'd rather do that. But instead, God sends him away. Now, listen, let this be an encouragement to many of you because he goes and he obeys God. Why is it? I can only speculate, but I think that it's consistent with Scripture. He knows that the safest place for him to be is in the middle and in the place of God's will. Let me tell you something. My prayer has been for this church for more than six years that God would raise up from Celebration Baptist Church missionaries. I love sponsoring missionaries from other churches, but I desperately want to begin to sponsor missionaries that are raised up through the ministry of this church that are gripped by the universal call of God to take the gospel to all people. And I'm still waiting for those that God would call up and raise up, and they're ultimately willing to go. And I know what some of you are thinking, why don't you go? Don't tempt me. The only reason that I remain as a pastor of Celebration Baptist Church is because I believe that God has called me to do all that I can and that I might for a season to be able to be better, to, to, to get and to encourage you to go and to do what God has called you to do for the propagation of the gospel. If my wife and I at any period of time find out that this just isn't working, that we not making a greater, a, a greater difference for the kingdom of God throughout all the world by being a pastor here, we're gone. We're gone. But here's what I think some of you are thinking. But it's dangerous there. And I see that struggle with some of you guys, even when we're, when we're going to Mexico or when we're going to Honduras or we're going to, to South Africa or we're going to Ethiopia or whatever it is. I see this thing. I don't want my husband to go because it's dangerous down there. And what I'm telling you is God has called us to go. And if you go where God calls you to do, it's the safest place you can possibly be. 
And I think there's a huge word because some of you are sitting there go, this is repugnant. I don't even think this way. I wasn't brought up this way, but your children are. So I want to encourage you and warn you just for a second. That I think what might very happen is this generation does not get it. Many of the children that are over here that we're teaching with the curriculum that we're using, that it's about God's glory and not our own. It's about propagating the gospel. Yeah, we are brainwashing your children. That your children are going to come to you and they're going to say, I need to go. And you're going to sit there, mom, in your heart, and you're not going to want them to go because, because that motherly love for them doesn't want them to get hurt. But I'm telling you here and now, the safest place for them to be is smack dab in, in, in the will of God, even if, according to humanistic terms, is the most dangerous place in the world for them to be. You say, well, Brother Mike, are you saying that they will not die there? No. They might die there. But they either die there or they'll die here. When your time is up, it's done. It's gone. God has your days numbered. And so you're either going to die for the glory of God to which you will be a part for all eternity or you will die growing fat sitting on a, uh, sitting on a, uh, a recliner somewhere eating bonbons and watching pay-per-view. What a glorious ending. And look, I know for my children, if God has that in some way to use them, to use it. But here, let me say this. But it's not, it's not just, and we're going to get to this in just a minute. It's not just going. We have to have people here too. We have to have people here who will work, but will put their savings and their giving on the line for what? For the propagation of the gospel to send them. We need both. Don't get me wrong here. We all go. We're not going to go very far. You got it? So we need that. But here's the thing. Let us be encouraged because it is, all, because it, it is, it is, it is God's faithful word. And so where he goes, secondly, by what he is called to do. I need to hurry. Also by what he's called to do. Now notice this. He said he's, he, the second part of his command was not only to go, but also to do something. He says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now that might not seem a big deal to you, but during this time it was. See, widows today, of course, there are needs for widows today. I don't mean to, 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 to belittle that at all. But back then, they didn't have uh, Social Security. They didn't have retirement. They didn't have 401Ks. Uh, they didn't have um, uh, an insurance policy. They had nothing. Usually, you could identify a widow by this. Uh, a widow that was by herself was known by her dirty fingers. Because she literally scraped out a meager existence within the trash and the dung heaps of those people that were just throwing it out to try to eke out an existence. That's basically what they were. So get this. God says, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Go down. I've already commanded a widow to take care of you. What do you think that does in the heart of Elijah? Um, God, could you have a king? Maybe. Is there anybody else that can ultimately do this? What is God doing? He doesn't want him to praise the source, the human source, but the divine source. He doesn't want him to be dependent on somebody. And I remember sitting there, and maybe you guys have some, boy, it would be so awesome to have somebody pay off my school debt. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be rich Uncle John? Yeah. Is it going to be rich Uncle Willie? Is it going to be that person that I know that I cut their lawn that one time? Who are you going to use? And God sits back and goes, I'm going to use your bank account to pay it off. God, that poor widow. God, that poor widow. And what does he do? He says, have faith in me. 
Now, I think that that needs to be encouragement to each of you because some of you have already said to me, we just don't have the money to be able to go on these mission trips. And the sad part is I've had those conversations with you at Outback Steakhouse. Yeah? I had that conversation on on the boat with you. I just don't have enough, $150 in gas. Just don't have the money to go down there and tell people about Jesus, man. You, you, you get where we're going? But here's what I'm ultimately saying is, if God calls you to go, and we don't sit back and say, well, should we go? Did you not read the New Testament when he said go? Are we not to be going in some fashion, short-term, part-term, going about where we are? Are we not to be doing it? I believe that God will provide. God will provide that particular thing. I don't think there was ever a missions trip that I've ever went on that I had the money before I decided to go. It was always, I will go, and at the last minute, all the money came together. I got enough. Thank you, Jesus, for your provision. And it was almost never by somebody writing me the check, here's your three grand, go! You know what it was usually? Some of the hardest hit financial people in our church that were barely eking it out and sat there and said, man, I've got 25 bucks for you to help to go. And be able to do these things. And what it does, it just brings glory to God. God uses the simple things in this world to confound the wise. So what he's doing is he's taking this guy's faith and he's purifying it by where he should go. And about what he is called to do. And let me just say this. For some of you, you may feel called to ministry. You may be feel called to missions. And you're like, I just can't do any of these things. And I'm telling you. Get together with your pastors. Get together with those that you love. Get together with those who think and understand in a kingdom-minded way. Let them speak truth into your life. It could be just a harebrained idea that you're thinking about. It may not be God at all, but get with people, pray about it. And if you can get other people and your pastors to agree, we believe this is the will of God for your life. Man, don't look at the little bit of money and say, it just cannot be done. I guess I can't go. Trust him. Trust him. He will provide. There's another thing that we find in the word of God. Not only is Elijah's faith being purified, but the widow's faith being purified as well. God was teaching her to do something. Now, notice this story just for a second. In the story, it says that he was going, and as he comes to her, uh, he, he begins to make some requests. <clears throat> he says, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and he said, bring me a morsel of bread In your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I am gathering the couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for yourself and my son that we may eat it and die. Question. Was it appropriate for this man to ask a woman And this kind of impoverished position to give to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that's a good question because there are people who have emailed and asked and we've had discussions beginning from last year primarily. And say, Brother Mike, you know the economy is bad. Isn't this placing another burden on the people? And I just think it's very interesting because God seems to have no problem with it. Why? Because God is trying to do far more than just make you and I comfortable. God is trying to make you and I more holy by taking our faith and putting it in the furnace and to purify that faith in him. And so what we find here is this. They have no problem. 
And so what happens is the first thing that God is doing is he, he wants her to put God first. That's what he wants, to put her first. Now, I understand that that's a difficulty because what we have uh, with, with some people here, there are some people that are very faithful in tithing, and I get that. But there are other people who have excuses, right? I mean, don't we all have excuses? I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be in compassion. I'm just trying to deal with the root of what's going on, even at Celebration Baptist Church. And that is this. We will sit back. The Bible is very clear that we are to tithe. It is the first fruits of the word of God that he, he tells us to do. But yet, there are those that sit back, and sometimes they just sit there and go, I can't do it because I just can't afford it. I just can't afford it, Brother Mike. I just can't do it. Well, you know what? Could this woman afford it? Could she afford to do it? What God's trying to do with you is he's trying to get you to trust him and trust his word and to do what? To give him the first, to make him first over everything else. Even your comfort? Yes. Even your comfort. Now stop and think about this just for a minute. He, he wants him to put him first and he wants to do what? And what does he give him? Nothing but the word of God. Notice this. I say that in, in tongue in cheek. He wants the second thing is to trust him and his word rather than her situation. Now, look at her situation just for a minute. The Bible says, she says, as the Lord says, I I can't do this. We're going to die. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake uh, 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 of it and bring it to me. And after, make something for yourself and for your son. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. You see what he's saying here? So here's the situation. Remember, she has a son who is dying. If you were to eat your last meal right now, it would probably be a little while. If you didn't eat a meal right now, it would probably be a little while before you and I died. You guys got that right. These people, to me, a reading of the text, are so malnourished. There is no hope that her son, no doubt, is in a very fragile state. It could be the place, and if you've ever been to a country where people are literally starving to death, they cannot call out to their mother. They cannot call out to their father and request something to eat. They do not have the strength to be able to do it. What do they do? If they have enough strength, they raise their finger and they point to their mom or they point to their lips. So here's a mom. She has a decision. Do I feed my starving child? Or do I propagate the gospel? And all I have, all I have is God's word that he will provide. That's all I have. And so what does she do? Blessedly, she obeys. Blessedly, she obeys and the word of God for her was simply enough. And she takes it and she cooks it up and she gives it to the prophet. And then we see that God is true to his word. What does it say? It says, and she went and she did as Elijah said, and she in her, in her household ate for many days. The jars of flour were not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Can you imagine the feeling of God's word coming true in your own life? That when she got done cooking that last thing and gave it, and if there was anything left over at all, she and her son ate it. And then to sit there and wake up the very next day, and as she went to that jar, saw that it was more was in there for oil, and more flour was in there again. 
And can you imagine over a period of time, because we know this happened at least more than a year, what would happen is each day it kept getting more and more, it would be filled up again. They would eat it. It would go down. Can you imagine as the child begins to build up their his strength each day? Now he can walk to the jars. And every night, every morning he comes up and he looks inside the jars and he says, he did it again. Mama, God did it again. And what I think is interesting about this story is, did you notice that it doesn't sit there um, and, 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 and ultimately say um, that she had all of this excess flour, all of this excess oil where she was able to use and she was able to go and buy a bigger house and she was able to go on a greater this and a greater that? It doesn't say that. Why? Because God does not promise us that. What does God promise you and I? He'll meet our needs. He'll meet our needs. Now, here's the biggest problem that we have. We are seriously messed up when it comes to what we believe a need is. Seriously messed up. If, if, if God meeting your need is your 5,000 square foot house, let me go bigger because somebody's got a 5,000 square foot, uh, a 20,000 square foot house that two of you live in, and that's ultimately your need, that you find that as a need for God to be able to pay that paycheck, that's wrong. God is going to provide what you need. To be able to live unto him. But this, there's something that means here. Listen to this. That if we begin to radically give. As this woman ultimately radically gives. What it means is God is going to meet our need. But what will happen is. We will probably lose things that we own. We will probably lose things. See God is looking for radical goers. And God is looking for radical givers. Which one are you? Those are the choices. Radical goers or radical givers. And I don't know of us, let us speak us, me included, I don't, I don't think I'm either. But to be a part of God's divine plan, you either have to be radically going or radically giving. And all we have to know that things might be okay is God's word. Is it enough for you? It was enough for this woman. And so what I'm praying for this morning is this, that you and I would rely on the blessing of God's word, that you and I would leave this place and for the very first time, perhaps understand that that person in Zimbabwe or wherever it is, Sakinabaf, uh, if she's over in Ethiopia, whoever, wherever the people are, that they, unless the word of God goes to them, they will not be saved. Secondly, That God cannot stop no matter how bad things seem. If you and I come to God and go to do his will, we cannot be stopped according to God's will. And the third thing is, what are you going to do? Radically go or radically give? Which is it going to be? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for this word. God, I know that this is not a feel-good message. Even though it makes me feel good to understand the word of God that we have what it calls us to do, and what it promises it will do in us.